Hey everyone, and welcome back to Risky Business, your weekly information security news and current affairs show. My name's Patrick Gray, and yeah, I, I probably should have mentioned that I was taking a couple of weeks off uh, on the last weekly show that we did, but uh, yeah, I, uh, I, I took a couple of weeks off, and now I'm back. So uh, hello everyone, back just in time uh, to actually uh, be sick with a cold again, so yay. Uh, but yeah, we're going to get into a discussion of recent security news and happenings shortly with Adam Boileau, uh, and then we'll be hearing from this week's sponsor, Thinkst Canary. Thinkst's head of engineering, Marco Slaviero, will be along in the sponsor chair this week to talk about two things, actually. Uh, the first thing is the, the features that Thinkst has added to its Canary products. Uh, but the second thing, and uh, this is probably the more interesting part, is Marco talks about what features they won't add to their products and uh, why. So that's a very interesting chat and that is coming up later. But first off, of course, it is time to talk through some of that recent cybersecurity news with our good friend, Adam Boileau. And um, yeah, of course, like since we went on break, uh, Musk has managed to find enough, you know, billions of dollars behind the couch or whatever that he's uh, taken over Twitter. And of course, in typical Musk style, he's on Twitter sort of saying, well, what should we do? Maybe we're going to charge people for their verified ticks. Cue a massive wave of phishing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. People have been receiving uh, emails purporting to say, you need to act now to keep your green, your blue tick uh, for a rest of time for free instead of having to pay like all of the other chumps. Uh, and of course, inevitably, these are phishing scams designed to steal your Twitter credentials. Uh, we've also seen... Uh, stolen blue tick accounts that also used for like messaging other users you know impersonating twitter support or whatever else you know abusing the blue tick powers to try and convince people and the other i mean the whole of twitter as a platform seems to be uh, you know on fire at the moment with the musk mageddon going on um, and we just don't know where and who knows where twitter's going to go through all of this there's so many people threatening to rage quit and they're not and you know certainly infosec twitter you know, is one of our great sources. You know, I, I you know, if if Twitter blows up, you know, it's one of the places where you know so many infosec people hang out. So much gossip happens, uh, and where we find all sorts of juicy tidbits to talk about. So, yeah, I mean, the reaction yeesh. to Musk taking over, though, it's a bit like I don't know if you ever saw it, the the South Park episode where Obama won the election <laughs> yeah. and all the conservatives ran to their bunkers. You know what I mean? Like it, yeah, it's yeah. Just, there, there's shades of that happening, right? So is, yes. I suspect it's going to be a case of meet the new boss. He's just like the old boss Pretty um, much, yes. because ultimately, you know, Twitter can't turn itself into a uh, Nazi friendly platform because as it turns out, advertisers don't like that sort of thing. So, um, I, you know, let's, let's just hang around and see, but I guess yeah. if it implodes, it'll be fun to watch. Right. So I, I yeah. want that front row seat. I'm not going anywhere. How about you? <laughs> yeah. But the idea that advertisers will save us is, is pretty funny, but you know, also it makes me laugh when, you know, there's people saying, Oh my God, I'm going to twit, twit, quit Twitter because mask. And it's like, but you're on TikTok." All right, let's move on to our next item. And apparently, well, and here's the thing. We have a report from a British tabloid, the UK Mail on Sunday, uh, saying that Liz Truss's, she was, she was, for those who don't know, uh, she was the Prime Minister of uh, the UK for a very short time. So if you blinked, you may have missed it. Um, but she was the the uh, Prime Minister of the UK for something like four Scaramucci's. Um, if you want to, if you want to measure it as, as Scaramucci's as a, as a unit for, for our American listeners, you know, explain in terms like in football fields and Scaramucci's. You know, I, I was actually in the United States for Scaramucci's entire tenure as the White House <laughs> spokesperson, and I was only there for like like twelve or thirteen days. And I think I landed there the day that he was appointed, and I left the, the, the day he was gone. I was there for like a. Uh, black hat or something, you know, uh, just crazy. Uh, but yeah, apparently uh, Russia owned her phone when she was foreign secretary and, um, you know, copied all of the data off it and whatever. The, the issue with this is that besides the Mail on Sunday, no one else is reporting this. 
Uh, yes, and you know, obviously tabloids not always the best source for great quality reporting, but on the other hand, it also sounds super believable. I mean, why wouldn't you, if you're you know Russian intelligence, why wouldn't you compromise the personal phones of you know political figures? That seems fairly firmly within your remit. Uh, apparently, she was using a Samsung Galaxy Note Eight. Uh, which I believe is what stuck on Android nine, <laughs> maybe not super update with the up to date with this with the security patches. So I mean, there's motive and there's means and there's clearly opportunity, but we we don't know more than you know what we're getting from the map. What are we doing, Adam? What are we doing? <laughs> when the foreign minister of the UK uh, was rolling around with a with an old Android device, yeah. you know, well, like, what are we know. doing? What are we doing? Yes, I agree. But you know, it, it it seems fair game to me, right? I mean, well, of course it's fair game. But I'm just I'm just stunned, you know, because you talk to politicians and stuff, and you ask them what sort of rules are there and what sort of personal devices you can use, and they just blink at you, you know, <laughs> and you just say, "Geez, come on, like let's let's get it together, will, will we?" Well, I mean, I, I think it'd be nice to think we would get it together, but I mean, the the meetings of the the meeting of the minds required between you know Spook and Intel agencies responsible for you know protecting people's devices, you know, in in government in proper government settings versus politicians who are very used to kind of freewheeling and talking to everybody and kissing all of the babies. You know, when you turn around and say, well, actually, now you can't you know, kiss the cyber babies on, on Twitter or TikTok or whatever, or you have to use a different device, or you have to compartmentalize your stuff. You know, this is a culture clash that generally it seems like the politicians who are used to just YOLO uh, end up winning. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, I, I think eventually we may find out if this in fact happened because the story made a big enough splash that there's calls for inquiries and, and blah, 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 blah. So, you know, maybe some good uh, will come out come out of this, right? But meanwhile, we've got people peddling inf- uh, misinformation, people like Kim.com who are saying, you know, after the Nord Stream pipeline uh, was, was damaged, Trust sent a text to someone saying it's done. Um, the only problem with that is that the alleged hacking took place months before the Nord Stream pipeline was damaged, you know, so <laughs> yeah, just the yeah. usual sort of The usual that we are used to. <sighs> now, look, staying in the similar vein of... Um, Spy's going to spy. Uh, Chinese hackers are apparently scanning state political party headquarters, according to the FBI, as reported uh, by the Washington Post's uh, uh, Cybersecurity 202 newsletter. No surprises here. We, in fact, saw them uh, attacking, well, you know, trying to trying to uh, get shell, uh, shall we say, uh, in Australian political parties not so long ago. It was a couple of years ago now. But, I mean, this seems to be a place where Chinese APT crews like to go, especially around the time of elections. And and to be honest, I don't find that all that surprising. They're going to be a good collection target. You might want to uh, you know, attack the uh, or exfiltrate data from the the opposition's uh, uh, political party HQ because then you're going to have more insight into the type of policies that you're going to be up against should they win government at the new ele- at the next election, right? So this is totally totally standard stuff. And of course, you know, political organisations are not as well funded or as well, uh, you know, kind of run and regulated as government environments. So it's a great place to get in early. Um, the FBI shift uh, left, been... shift left. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> the FBI said that they've been uh, visiting the offices of a number of Republican uh, and Democratic, you know, political party, you know, environments. Uh, 
the NSA said that they had seen something like, you know, a hundred different political related systems being scanned or different organizations uh, being scanned by Chinese attackers or by state attackers. Um, so, you know, it feels like the sort of activity that you would expect. It's good that we're talking about it. Like, it's good that the FBI is out there, you know, going out and visiting the various places. You know, we saw some good advice from um, Democratic Party, you know, officials in the last election as well about, you know, providing support for and advice to the sort of regional bits. But it's just, you know, our whole democratic system making it all as robust as we would expect from central government. I mean, and given how much central government also gets hacked, um, you know, that, that's a pretty hard ask. And yeah, I mean, no, no, I mean, it, like what you said earlier is right. Like these aren't government systems, right? They're not yes. as well protected. So, you know, when it happened here, it made a really big splash. The government was saying that there was a possibility this was going to be used in some sort of, you know, the data obtained in these uh, intrusions was going to be used in some sort of influence campaign. You know, that never came to be from the looks of things. Like it's my feeling they were just doing collection, but China is ramping up its information operations lately. So who knows? Maybe, maybe yeah. that's something we can look forward to in the future, Adam. Yeah, it's always great fun. So many things to look Look forward to it and <laughs> our wonderful industry and wonderful game that we play. Now, staying with Skullduggery, a uh, former Wall Street Journal reporter is suing a law firm that he claims used one of these Indian hacker for hire companies to uh, get into his uh, email and exfiltrate the contents and run an information operation against him that wound up getting him fired uh, because of some perceived conflicts of interest. Uh, he actually wrote a really interesting write-up about this experience for the Columbia Journalism Review, and I've, I've linked through to it in um, this week's show notes. What's new here, though, is the link between the law firm and the, you know, linking the law firm to, like, Beltrox or whatever, or Cyberroot or whatever they call themselves, um, and this campaign and sort of tying it all together. So it's interesting seeing, you know, that there are still some consequences to play out from that Reuters reporting into some of these hacker for hire uh, firms. Yes, yeah, so when we've talked about those hacker for hire firms and the sort of the scale and variety of targets they've got, you know, we I remember at the time saying like I would be really interested to see the full picture of like who's hiring, what their motives are, how are they paying it, how are they fronting it, and like how does that whole process work end to end? And so this story has been interesting because we are starting to see you know some of those dots connected um, and understand you know kind of how it all worked uh, and that for me I think is really useful because it gives you you know hacking now is no longer about technical right it's about the effects that you get from it uh, and the incentives and all that kind of thing so understanding it super useful yeah yeah indeed so that's an interesting story that one was by Raphael Sada uh, over at Reuters and uh, yeah it's only right that uh, they're following it up um oh uh, yeah so you know normally when I go on holidays something awful happens right so what happens I go and leave and then there's an announcement that there's some upcoming bug in OpenSSL that's going to melt the planet, going to ruin everyone's lives. It's like, that's it. The internet's done. Um, and it stayed like that. Everyone's at like condition red. As soon as I come back into the office, Adam, they downgrade it. What does that tell you? <laughs> now, it's, now it's just a bit of a, eh, eh. But, but tell, us, tell us about this OpenSSL bug, which only affects like versions greater than three, right? 3.x. <laughs> Yeah, so this was hyped a little bit uh, as you know the second example of a critical bug in OpenSSL. And OpenSSL, for those not familiar, is a cryptographic library that you know underlies pretty much all open source you know network encryption, web servers, that kind of thing. Super, you know, used absolutely everywhere. And the last like really bad one we saw was Heartbleed, where there was a memory leak that you could like pull contents of remote memory out of the of the machine over the network and use that to leak crypto keys or cookies or whatever else. And it was really bad and super widespread. So everyone was very excited. Um, 
And it has turned out to not be that exciting. The first constraint, of course, as you mentioned, is that it only affected OpenSSL version 3, which is you know, a pretty small set of things and probably limited to the sorts of people that integrate very, very quickly, you know, who do, you know, um, pull out the upstream releases, you know, into their code and release very, very often. So like DevOpsy, Agile, these sorts of places rather than critical infrastructure. And then, yeah, the bug itself, when it finally dropped uh, yesterday, turned out to be memory corruption which is which is cool and you know often memory corruption can lead to code execution which would be terrible but it turns out to be a pretty not super exciting bug in like the parsing of email addresses in certificate constraints where you can maybe get a four byte stack overflow uh, i think it was you know from this process but the certificates also have to be valid and it's a it's going to be pretty hard. To, it's it's what to it's what they on. would call in corporate speak a heavy lift. Yes, yeah. So I don't think anyone's going to get particularly owned by it. Uh, there'll probably be some researchers who have a great time trying to you know come up with a Rube Goldberg way of actually using it for something. Um, but it uh, has not turned out to be the planet melter that we were all looking forward to, uh, and it's been downgraded from critical to high. My fault. My fault for coming back into the office. I apologize. But I do think there are some positives to this thing. I mean, the, the OpenSSL team handled this process honestly pretty well. We saw some other bugs, you know, in the past have leaked early. You know, this was pretty tightly held and, you know, there was enough fuss to get people aware of what was going on. And I think, you know, as vuln disclosure in big internet projects go, like this is far from the worst. Yeah, so, no, I mean, it's good that it's good that bugs in major projects, something as big as OpenSSL or like Core Apache or something like that, like yeah. it should get that sort of attention. So yes. I, I'm with you. It's good. Yeah. So overall good. And all of the admins who are gearing up for a patch fest today probably are having a better day at the office than they were expecting. So that's nice too. That's nice. Now, what isn't nice is what happened to uh, Medibank here in Australia. Um, now, I know that this is just an Australia story and we have a you know an international audience, but there are some really interesting elements to this. So Medibank, uh, it was a ransomware crew came in uh, and tried to ransomware Medibank. Apparently, the security team there managed to stop the ransomware bit, but they didn't stop the exfil, right? So the, the attackers made off with all of this really sensitive health information. So it's got a lot of customer records that might say, you know, what procedures, the codes of which procedures they've claimed, uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So it's not really stuff uh, that you want out there. And of course, the the attackers are now asking for a whole bunch of money uh, unless they want you know this data out there out there in the open. Now, the interesting part here is that the in response to this, the Australian government has actually invoked something called the National Coordination Mechanism. And this was a framework set up during the pandemic, which would allow the government to enable all sorts of coordination between different government agencies. And what they've done is they've mobilised the Australian Federal Police, the Health Department, and the Australian Signals Directorate to all go onto this. And apparently, you know, we're seeing comments from senior officials that, you know, ASD and AFP are going hard at this. You know, apparently there were even ASD people at Medibank's offices. I don't know what they're doing there. Probably some sort of incident response type stuff. I don't know. But the point is the government here is now throwing the kitchen sink at these major incidents. We saw that, we saw that um, ASD and AFP teamed up on the Optus thing, which was just from the looks of it, some opportunistic kid. This is, uh, by the looks of things, a more serious criminal enterprise that they're up against. Uh, but it's very interesting seeing a whole of government response because finally we might get an answer to the question, you know, what would it look like if you started getting some of the cyber agencies, the foreign-focused cyber agencies involved in the response here? 
Yes, I think that is the really important thing, you know, seeing how the Australian government has responded to this, you know, both in terms of things you're describing, also like the response of the Australian cyber minister to the Optus breach was, you know, of course, a source of much, you know, cheering uh, from over here and other places as well, seeing the, you know, the minister smack down the, the sophisticated, sophisticated attacker attack. stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. like the, and seeing that kind of response as a whole, you know, increasing the, the sort of fines and looking at, um, you know, privacy legislation and, and the obligations of the Privacy Commissioner or whatever the equivalent thing is in Australia, um, you know, seeing the response from the minister, seeing response from intelligence and, and law enforcement agencies, like actual coordinated action by government against this kind of thing just feels like the thing that we need. And I think, you know, we're all looking to Australia to see how well this works. Yeah, that's um, the thing. That's the thing. And see, I don't think some people, you know, when I've advocated for releasing the hounds, you know, some people have said, oh, well, you know, offensive cyber operations or, you know, aren't magic, Patrick. And I'm like, I know that, right? But if you're an AFP investigator looking at something like this and you get to a point where the only way you can proceed is to either pop a shell or brute force a user account or something like that, you can't do it. Whereas ASD can, because it operates under different authorities, right? So that that's the part where I think this might really grease the wheels and make things work a little bit better. And it's 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 less to do with the skill of the operators and more to do with what they can and can't do legally. And it just makes sense to involve, you know, the breach of, of 3 million medical records. We're a country of like, what, 24, 25 million people. You, you lose medical records for more than 10% of the citizenry. That's a national security issue, right? So it makes sense to mobilize an, an agency like ASD in this case. And I, I'm really happy that the government recognizes that. And now, uh, well, maybe not now, but I think in time, we're going to see if this, is, uh, this actually gets us anywhere. Yeah, well, we certainly tried the other options with, you know, stern language and yeah. regular law enforcement and mutual legal assistance treaties and so on and so forth. And it does not feel like it has been super effective. So, I mean, there's no harm in trying something else. And hey, maybe it doesn't work. But this feels like it has more opportunity to actually succeed. And as you say, like if you come up against, you know, some box on tour and you've got no other way to progress your investigation, you can't go to some hosting provider in Bulgaria and ask, then... You know the pragmatic solution of, of of calling the hounds and let them at it, and maybe they've already, maybe they were already in there, you know, because yeah, the hounds that's what they do. It makes sense, and yeah, I I applaud, uh, and I you know also adding all of the other sticks, you know, increased liability for directors, increased fines, increased yes. you know kind of all of the other tools that the government can use to make the marketplace more effective when it comes to making privacy and security meaningful things they have to care about. So that's the yeah. other thing we're going to talk about here is that yeah, yes. Australia the Australian government is like 10xing the fine regime, right? Yes, so yes, exactly. up from like a couple of million bucks up to like 50 million uh, or something is it? Yeah, Australia uh, 50 million Australian dollar fines and um yeah, I am trying to actually get an interview with our Home Affairs Minister, because the cybersecurity portfolio got rolled into Home Affairs after the election, because Tim Watts, who was going to be the cybersecurity minister, became the essentially the like the deputy foreign minister uh, here, so he was unavailable for the cyber portfolio. And yeah, for someone who wasn't even supposed to be here today, um, <laughs> as they say, Claire O'Neill is just doing a terrific job. So yeah, we're going to try to get her on the show and um, you know quiz her. I'll let you know how that goes. Yeah, that sounds great. I'd be interested too. Uh, meanwhile, Eastern Europe is just awash in uh, DDoS attacks targeting political institutions like parliaments and whatever. Uh, I think reading Catalan Kimpanu's coverage in our newsletter, it looks like Poland was able to uh, stave off the attacks, but Slovakia was not so lucky. 
Yes, there is reports of denial of service or some kind of outage involving this parliament in Slovakia. Apparently, even as much as like the canteen where you can get some snacks between meetings, apparently that could not process payments. Um, and there, there's no real specifics or, or anything that suggests beyond denial of service. But yeah, it's a it's a tough time for a lot of people's networks uh, all around the place. Yeah, a lot of unhappy Russians flinging a lot of packets. Uh, yeah, kind of things, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, just a funny one. Uh, the New York Post. Uh, claimed it got hacked because uh, all of a sudden its website was covered in really, really, really offensive um, headlines and its Twitter account was spitting out like, we need to assassinate AOC and stuff like that. And they were like, yeah, we got hacked. Uh, turns out the hacker actually worked there. Uh, so not anymore. <laughs> not anymore. But, uh, you know, fancy that a fascist worked at the New York Post. I mean, I'm just stunned. <laughs> yes. Uh, well, not not anymore, at least. They've rooted one of them out of their mist, uh, midst. But uh, yeah, insider attacks still a thing. It's not always some you know shady Russian hacker in a in a matching out of this tracksuit. Sometimes yeah. it's just the people on the next desk over. Yeah, that's right. Uh, Lily Hay Newman has a story up on Wired, and this one I'm surprised this hasn't been getting more attention, Adam. This is one of those stories that yeah I haven't seen all over the place. Uh, but <laughs> uh, Apple pushed an update to macOS uh, to macOS Ventura that broke basically every third-party security tool, right? So uh, it, it, it has to do with like the full disk access that security tools need to work. Essentially, this access got revoked. Um, I mean, if you're a Mac user, you just have to go in and like disable it and then re-enable it. There's a few steps there. Uh, but... Yeah, this is a big deal because it broke absolutely everything. And we see there is, there's a lot more Apple stuff in corporate environments these days. And I kind of worry that there's a lot of people, like even people listening to this, who might not be aware that this has happened. Yeah, yes, yeah, it's kind of a concerning uh, concerning story because, as you said, it broke the, some of the hooks that uh, the security tools could use, and it was because of changes to the like the privacy and access framework. So, you know, Apple is pushing you know, users having to give consent about access to their data and, and um, you know, privacy being an important part of their pitch. You know, these controls are important. And we've seen in the past, you know, attackers use these sorts of controls to disable security tools because if you're running in the context of the end user of the machine, the idea is that that person should be able to, you know, give consent about what's going on on their machine. And so abusing those to then turn off security products you know, is a, an avenue to pursue. And it's very difficult, you know, when you're designing those controls to make something that's robust, you know, against, you know, a lower level user who's got access to the machine, but who is logically the administrator from the point of view of data. So it's a hard problem to solve. And we've seen some cat and mouse um, between researchers and Apple about how to use these controls to bypass things or, you know, manipulate them. And yeah, this the fact that they managed to, to slip an update out that you know, kind of transparently broke access for security tools is concerning, but it's also just a really hard problem. Um, well, it is, so. it is. And I'm, you know, I'm not saying this to be overly critical of Apple because mistakes happen, but I think yeah. one of the issues here is because they have a, you know, North Korea-like secrecy culture <laughs> yeah. that, you yeah. know, they're not out there talking about this because you don't, I mean, I understand that Apple has actually uh, recently launched a, a security blog, but you know, they're, they're not the type of company that talks about stuff like this. My issue here isn't that they made a mistake. It's just that there there hasn't been much awareness of it and it's actually pretty consequential. Uh, yes, and it's also, you know, when, you know... Like it broke it broke everything, like malware by its CrowdStrike. Even Airlock had issues with this. Like the, the saving grace is if you're using Apple's MDM, it's not an issue. But, 
Yeah, yeah, a which lot is good of, for for corporate environments at least. Yeah. But it's and also it's just the fact that it wasn't clearly visible in the UI because obviously in the Mac world, you know, everything is surfaced in user friendly UIs, and you you learn to trust those to convey to you what's going on. And the idea that you should like turn it off and on again is much less of a problem solving technique in the Mac world than it is in the Windows. So yeah, yeah, I think you know there's some user surprise as well as you said not well publicized yeah well they're gonna fix it so that's good, Which is good. Um, but uh yeah maybe something to look into if you got max uh, on your network we've got a couple more stories here uh one's written by lily hay newman as well and uh, another one by jonathan grieg looking at vice society and this is a ransomware crew that's like kind of vertically integrated pretty interesting um couple of different angles in the reporting here uh lily hay newman has gone with the angle that the reason that they've been so successful is because they're kind of mediocre and have stayed under the radar a bit. Um, <laughs> this was the crew that took down the LA school districts and released kids information, you know, which was pretty outrageous at the time. Uh, but really the reason I wanted to talk about this is because um, Jonathan Grieg wrote about one interesting tactic that they use, which is when they get into an environment, they change all of the passwords before they rinse the AD just to make recovery that much harder. And I just thought, how many people have tabletopped that, right? I think that's a very interesting tabletop exercise, which is trying to do ransomware recovery when there was a like global password change for every user before the <laughs> ransomware was deployed. Did you did you spot that bit as well? Yeah, I think, yeah. Ugh. Yeah, that that's, does sound like a pretty horrible situation. And uh, I know, I know um, we weren't ransomwareing them, but I know at one point in one customer, you know, we accidentally triggered some account lockouts and we ended up locking out everybody who could unlock accounts. Yeah, I bet that, that made little, for some really pleasant phone calls, Adam. That was not a, not a fun phone call, <laughs> yes. Um, so you know, those situations are not things that people necessarily have thought through or tabletop, and, and probably you should think about how terrible that would be in your environment. But yeah, I think you know, Lily's uh, take that you know the, these are relatively mediocre cats using whatever tools are available. You know, not necessarily tied to a particular you know ransomware as a service platform, or a particular set of tooling. You know, just doing kind of what works. And, you know, with a focus on healthcare and schools and, and, you know, educational stuff, like those are easy targets because they're so hard to defend and lack a budget and blah, blah. Um, and, you know, they're not hitting Medibank <laughs> and getting the AFP on their tail or the ASD on their tail. So, yeah, that's a viable strategy. Yeah, well, for now, for now, I don't for know. Now. I think the LA school district thing kind of put them on that, the map. That, so that was pretty let's big. Yes. See how much attention they get. Uh, Andrea Peterson over at the Record reports, and a few people have reported on this actually that uh, Drizzly, which I think is like an online alcohol sales and delivery platform, which was acquired by Uber, it's facing like FTC action. It essentially has to agree to a whole bunch of stuff due to due to an FTC action. Um, you know about you know better securing customer data and stuff like that. The interesting thing here, though, is that the FTC has also essentially placed restrictions on Drizzly's CEO. So it's it's like put a consent decree on a person, uh, basically saying any other businesses that this person runs has to abide by these, these restrictions on carefully securing user information. So uh, this, this one caused a bit of discussion. And, um, you know, I, I think it's, I think it's an interesting, it's an interesting step. Yeah, I think it is a really interesting move. And, you know, anything that makes concern about security and privacy issues, you know, visible further and further up, you know, up to the board, up to the, the chief executives, uh, you know, company directors, organizations, you know, that has helped. And then, you know, actually having individually targeted responses to, to you know, people involved, that feels like a thing that makes it a bit more real. And I can think of, you know, when I read this, I was reminded of that uh, story we covered a while ago about that psychotherapy chain in Finland, Vesta Amo, and the idea that, 
you know, the people who had started that and done such a terrible job, you know, of securing, you know, psychotherapy patient records, getting them all stolen, having people ransomware. Like, I don't want people like that building another business somewhere else. And so, like, in that respect, targeting individual people, that feels kind of righteous to me. Um, you know, and anything that makes it more impactful for people who are in the position of, you know, controlling the purse strings and making the choices and doing the risk management judgments, I think that's going to help. It's really funny that you mentioned that uh, Finland thing because uh, the Finnish authorities, and I just read this in Catalan's latest newsletter, which actually isn't even out yet, so I'm looking at a draft now, and uh, I'll just read from it. Finnish authorities have arrested in absentia and issued a European arrest warrant in the name of a 25-year-old Finnish citizen on suspicion of orchestrating that uh, attack against oh, wow. the Vastamo uh, Psychotherapy Centre. So Excellent. there's an indictment. Yeah, Excellent. yeah. That's it's really just really good. funny when Excellent. you... that that you happen to mention that because that's not flagged for discussion in this week's show. Um, and, you know, again, for those of you uh, listening who aren't subscribed to Catalan Kimpanu's newsletter with us, uh, you can find that at riskybiznews.substack.com. And there is a podcast version of that newsletter, which uh, we've just made a big change to it. Um, uh, Claire Aird, who's an ex-ABC person and now a freelancer, uh, is reading those uh, podcasts for us because, you know, uh, it frees Catalan up to do more feature-based work. And also some people said that they found Catalan, uh, it wasn't that they found him hard to understand, but he has an accent and they would have to concentrate a little bit too hard uh, to listen to him. So we got someone else to read the, uh, to read the scripts and uh, that started this week. And uh, I'll drop in a little sample. Uh, at the end of the news so you can hear what Claire sounds like uh, reading the news. But yes, excellent reporting there from Catalan as always about that indictment. Moving on and uh, yeah, we got a Dan Gooden article here from Ars Technica and uh, look, it's 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 interesting but I was actually really drawn to it from a comment on it uh, down, down the bottom which sort of explains how this may have happened, right? So Google Play has uh, squashed a bunch of apps uh, that had between them 20 million downloads and uh, there were complaints that they were draining batteries and network bandwidth, right? And it turns out what these apps were doing, and they were the usual sort of stuff like unit conversion apps, uh, flashlight apps, things like that. But what they were doing is dropping browsers like in the background to do ad fraud, right? So to load sites and click on the ad and, and, and whatever, right? Which is, yeah, going to make your battery run flat. But there's a comment on this piece that suggests that really what the the way they were able to get so many installs is just by buying up some of these projects, right? And and you know, as I say, it's just a comment on the post, but it it, it totally feels true. What did you make of this, Adam? Yeah, yeah, exactly. That that really did ring pretty true to me. And we've seen you know stories in the past of people buying you know browser extensions or mobile applications or whatever else that do have an install base. Uh, in this case, one of the developers of like a camera application that had a paid version and, a, like, and an ad-supported ad free version said that he had sold the ad-supported free version to somebody else some years back after it had already become established. He kept running the paid version because it was a viable business, but didn't care about the ad-supported version. So I bought it, and that was then modified to do this this ad fraud, which makes a lot of sense, right? Going around, and you, you know, when you look at the economics for developers and how much they're making on ad revenue and how much of a pain it is, you can totally see why you would just pack it up and sell it. And it's a great way you know, probably not that much money um, to go and when you've got a scam like this set up already, just increase your, you know, the amount of users that you that you are hitting. So totally sounds believable to me. Well, and you'd have really good understanding of how, of what your ROI to number of millions of users looks like, right? Yes, so you exactly. just sit down with a calculator, work out, okay, well, I can offer you $5,000 for this app and people are going to take it. 
Yes, and then also the sorts of scrutiny that an app gets at, you know, initial setup time in the app stores, you know, initial install time versus what you get for a, for a little update, you know, or even understanding that an application user has changed ownership, right? There's no, that's not visible or surfaced anywhere such that users could make choices or even, you know, the technical review process for updates probably doesn't get the same sort of, you know, um, of, of work done on it as a new one. So you can see how it works and yeah, great idea. Yeah, I mean, I, I will admit to thinking the same yeah. thing, Adam, which is like, you could probably make a lot of money doing that. And it's mm -hmm. it's the sort of thing that will get you sued too, not put in prison. So I was like, yeah, mm, that's it's the right mm, combo. Yeah, Let's see. Eh? Coming um, soon, Risky Biz Ad Networks. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Brian Krebs has, I, I don't want to get sued either, to be honest. Mm -hmm. But uh, yeah, <laughs> uh, Brian Krebs has been following, well, he's been looking into uh, fake LinkedIn profiles over the last few weeks and written some really interesting reports on them. Because, uh, yeah, as he, he's just noticed and proven that there's just been an explosion in fake profiles for people like, I am a CISO at this Fortune 500 company. And there's some like AI generated image of someone whose ears don't quite look right when you zoom in on them. You know, that's a, <laughs> yeah, that yeah, sort of yeah. thing, right? And, um, you know, he's got, a, got some follow-up reporting here that looks at a, um, a surge in fake LinkedIn profiles at companies like Apple and Amazon, etc., but it does look like this is something that LinkedIn are, are trying to get on top of. And one of the ideas floated in this article is they should do more like domain validation for LinkedIn profiles. You know, if you claim to work at Amazon, maybe you should be able to be mailed a link to your Amazon email address and you should be able to click that link to prove that you are who you say you are, right? Yes, yeah, and there's some really interesting uh, numbers that he's pulled out, and I think you know uh, this work that he's been doing, you know, over the last couple of uh, couple of months uh, on LinkedIn. It looks like LinkedIn has started to respond to some of this, and for LinkedIn, this is pretty important stuff for them. Like it being a trustworthy source of source of information of who you're connecting with, um, you know, it's important to the platform. Um, so we've seen them take a bunch of action. Some of the numbers Brian was looking at was like so, for example, on LinkedIn, there were you know half a million people that claimed to work for, uh, work for Apple, and then it. At some point, LinkedIn went past, and now that number is 200,000 because uh, yeah. they went through and culled a whole heap of these inauthentic accounts. Similar pattern for people who work at Amazon was 1.2 million. Then all of a sudden, on basically the same day, that dropped 800,000. I still don't know if there's 800,000 people that work at Amazon. Uh, yeah. But it seems like a good start. Um, so yeah, LinkedIn do seem to be doing some work in that in that area, and it is important. So you yeah. know, uh, we'll see them improve it, I'm sure, even more. Yeah, and I don't think domain validation is going to completely uh, uh, fix this. But I mean, it, it might for certain companies. You know, like you would, you would have perhaps verified um, uh, profiles or whatever. You know, could could yeah. You could certainly see for big companies, LinkedIn offering that as a mechanism, you know, as a thing that a company could subscribe to or, or you know facilitate to validate their employees. So Just think of the phishing opportunities being impersonated. <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah, pay yeah. eight bucks a month to have a verified LinkedIn profile. Yeah. Click here, mm. fill in your details. Yeah, just like the two. Maybe, maybe Musk can buy LinkedIn off Microsoft. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> maybe. All right. Oh, now, Ooh. look, staying with the Microsoft uh, clown yeah. car, uh, it looks like Microsoft lost control of like 2.4 terabytes of customer data because they had some Azure storage blob like misconfigured basically their version of an s3 bucket uh <laughs> left left in the open um i was trying actively trying not to pay too much attention to infosec when i was on break adam like what what's the story here like what was this data uh, so yeah, there was a bunch of data that seemed to relate to projects and you know like arranging work to be done and some customer information documentation that involved in some cases government entities, uh, but all, you know overall a really large trove of customer related information going back some years. 
probably you know would be a pain to dig through and turn into into useful things but it had clearly been indexed uh, you know and and pulled out by some of the of the services and and people that go rummaging around looking for exposed s3 buckets exposed amazon um, azure blob storage etc um, microsoft's response to it has also been kind of problematic where they didn't really identify kind of the nature the specific nature in fact we have to discuss the specific nature of information when we don't have great uh, data from microsoft is hard and also the, the scale and the number of customers and microsoft was sort of there was a bit of messenger shooting going on there was a bit of arguing oh well a bunch of it was duplicate so it's less impactful etc and also i mean we should ex reasonably expect microsoft to be able to secure their own goddamn azure blobs uh, so there was a lot of you know kind of, of mud being slung probably quite legitimately at microsoft. Well, well this is this is a theme of the week right because we got two other stories here uh microsoft was also uh they paid a bounty for a bug in an encryption scheme it was using to encrypt 0365 <laughs> messages and then didn't fix the problem and were sort of flinging shit at the, the people who reported this as well, right? And then we got yet another story, this one from Portswigger, about some sort of uh, SSRF uh, to RCE exploit in Microsoft Office Online server, which Microsoft say they're not going to fix because it's a feature, not a bug. And, <laughs> you know, it just seems like their comms culture these days is all about minimization and less about, you know, illuminating uh, what, what's actually happening. Yeah, yeah, I do think the you know the cycle of security. I was going to say competence, but that's not really the right thing because there's still plenty of very competent people doing great work there. But as an overall organization, their handling of security issues has been on on the downhill for the last few years, and hopefully the cycle will bottom out and we'll start to head back up again. Um, but yeah, their response to all three of the issues we talked about today uh, do seem pretty substandard. And I mean, the the one with the message encryption is. I mean, honestly, pretty funny. Um, this was a they were using a scheme called ECB mode, electronic codebook mode for encrypting messages uh, in the like uh, Outlook message encryption function. And there's reasons why they're doing it, and the reasons are you know like backwards compatibility and old stuff. Um, but ECB mode is like the the very much the clown car crypto mode that it's the first thing that anyone learns in a class about like bad crypto choices is, is the futility of using ECB mode. So in that respect, it's just made a whole bunch of people go, what do you mean you were doing that? Um, yeah, yeah. I, it's the sort know. of it's the sort of choice that makes people like Tom Uren, who's you know obviously uh, writes our seriously risky business newsletter, and uh, you know spent fifteen years at ASD. It's the sort of bug that makes him bounce up and down in his chair a little bit, though, you know, because yeah. <laughs> it's it's exactly the sort of thing where if you did have a massive storage array full of O three six five messages that you couldn't like look at, this is the sort of thing that would be very helpful. <laughs> Although I think if you had that that many messages lying around, you probably were also you know able to spot. The this, you know, 20 years ago or yeah. whatever, and we're already using it all. <laughs> <laughs> but like Tom, Tom has a, a great write-up actually uh, on this. He, he wrote he wrote up this this problem uh, that Microsoft's problematic um, uh, communications on this. Like for for example, the breach that we just spoke about, where the 2.44 terabytes of data were exposed. You know, he quotes Microsoft saying, "Our investigation found no indication customer accounts or systems were compromised." That's what Microsoft said about a data loss incident. And as Tom says here, this is what you say if you're a sociopathic pedant. And while it's technically correct, it's also misleading. So, yeah, I mean, the headline of last week's newsletter was uh, Microsoft's sociopathic cybersecurity pedantry, <laughs> which um, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Could, not, could not agree more. And that's the kind of disingenuous response that m makes you not want to trust 
you know, what they're telling you, you know, about other things, right? About, you know, it's it's the same logic that you end up saying we take customer security and privacy yeah. very seriously. Yeah. You know, that's it's it's just that with a slightly different, you know, technical bent at this point, that does not mean anything and presents a false understanding of what happened and what the impacts are. And that's, you know, from a company that is at the center of every organization's you know, business tools in the in the form of Office 365, we expect better. Yeah, I mean, we've certainly wound the clock back, you know, 20 years, I think, yeah. on, um, on on Microsoft's, uh, you know. Sadly, yes. Yeah, exactly. Oh, and there's another there's another item, actually, in last week's newsletter. I asked Tom to look into this, all right, for us, because, you know, you and I were talking about how guacamaya is like proper down-home, you know, uh, <laughs> activism. Um, I was actually chatting with, with Catalan, about them. And I'm like, look, where is the data that they stole hosted? And he said, Enlace hacked a Vista. And it made me go, mm. ding, hang on. Didn't we see something that looked suspiciously like a Chinese government-backed influence <laughs> operation targeting the Australian election that was also linked to Enlace hacked a Vista? And then, you know, I went down the the Pepe Silver like whiteboard <laughs> yeah. uh, route with this, yeah. right? And I'm like, yeah. hang on, what if, what if Guacamaya is a Chinese-backed uh, influence operation designed to undermine rare earth mineral mining that's happening outside of China. Now, we've seen some pretty piss-poor attempts, uh, to be honest, from from the Chinese, like with their, what was it called? Like Dragon Bridge or something. Uh, they've done some, uh, uh, you know, disinformation operations targeting mining in the past. And and so I asked Tom, I'm like, you know, can you look at this and, and see what you find? See if you can disprove it. And Tom's come back eventually, and it's all written up in last week's newsletter, and said, look, there are a couple of red flags, but it feels genuine to him. And the reason, and, and this, is, this is what I love about it, the reason is because the videos that Guacamaya have published are funny. <laughs> and it's and it's one of the things that APT crews, when they're tasked with doing disinformation stuff, like you look at the Sony Pictures breach and the artwork that they used, it just looked like I think at the time you said uh, it looks like the sort of artwork you get when you ask some you know Communist Party flunky to make it look like hackers done it, right? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Whereas this actually feels genuine. But did you did you read through this? Yes, yeah, I did, and I I was. You know, I, I've been in such an emotional roller coaster with this because I wanted it to be hacktivists because I always wanted it to be, you know, hacktivists. Uh, and then your argument that maybe it was Chinese info ops made me all sad that I had, you know, fallen for the, for the, you know, fallen for the Chinese info op. I felt, you know, I felt terrible. So then reading this was a bit of a roller coaster. When he gets to the end, he's like, actually, yeah, maybe it is hacktivists after all. I'm like, ah, thank God for that. But uh, it's, yeah. but and we don't. And we don't, we don't know. That's the thing. We don't know. That's the thing, right? And, I, and want I, to, I want to believe, man. <laughs> I want to believe as well. But like that that's just the crazy thing with hacktivism campaigns yes. these days is you just don't know. And what if, what if uh, the people behind this are working on, on behalf of the Chinese government and they've realized, no, we really need to spend some time on making it feel authentic, right? Like who's the funniest person in the crew? Like let's get yeah. them to come up with some ideas, right? But I mean, I don't <laughs> think that's what's happened. I don't. Uh, I think Tom's probably right here, but you're right. We don't know. Maybe Topiary is consulting. Like he could do a yeah. good business on, on consulting to APT crews to make their uh, campaigns feel more like lulzic. <laughs> Topiary, aka Jake Davis, who I actually checked in with a few months ago to see oh, how yeah. he's going. And uh, as best I can tell, he's got absolutely nothing to do with InfoSec these days. And good. that's a making him choice. very, very happy. So, a fine um, choice. A fine choice. <laughs> Be Hello, like Jake, Jake, everybody. <laughs> Hello, Jake, if you're listening, which you're probably not because you're out there leading a normal and happy life. And uh, good for you. Speaking of hacker kids, actually, Adam, uh, Brazilian police have announced that they uh, they arrested one of the Lapsus members over there. I think there were some raids and search warrants, you know, before that, and we we're expecting some arrests, and yeah, there has been one. 
Yeah, it was, I guess part of the natural life cycle for those kinds of you know hacker crews. They burn real bright. Uh, they do some funny stuff. They pop some shells, and then yeah, the opsec, the bad opsec, comes back to get them, uh, and everyone snitches, and, and everyone goes down. Uh, and we got another one from Brian Krebs here, who is reporting that the twenty-six-year-old <laughs> oh, Ukrainian guy who is awaiting extradition from the Netherlands to face charges that he developed the raccoon stealer uh, malware, which collected something like fifty million cred pairs. Like it was, it was very successful stuff. Uh, but it looks like he might have got pinched because he fled Ukraine to dodge the draft when the war started. Yeah, the reporting said that he was in uh, Kharkiv at the time uh, that the war kind of kicked off. Uh, took his Porsche, paid for with uh, you know with uh, info stealer money, drove across the border into Poland and onwards into the rest of Europe, and he would have got away with it, uh, except that his girlfriend was tweeting the whole journey on her Insta. So, well, yeah, you don't tweet um, on your Insta, but sorry, you know, I, I you, mean, you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah, you know what yeah. I mean. <laughs> uh, so yeah, brought down by a little bit of poor opsec there, which is yes. wouldn't be the first time that's happened. No, it would not. Now, Adam, I just want to close out this week's news discussion with a bit of a chat about Microsoft and bad kernel extensions. Bad <laughs> kernel kernel drivers, sorry. Um, so where to, where to even begin with this? Like this has been an issue that people have been talking about for the last few months and I haven't gone there. And the reason I haven't gone there is because the whole thing comes down ultimately to whether or not you think admin to kernel should be a protected security boundary. And I just don't know where I sit on that, uh, basically. <laughs> but like to... to, to Let's just frame, let's hang this thing on, on Dan Gooden's article here from Ars Technica, yeah. which basically reveals that um, Microsoft's block list for vulnerable uh, uh, drivers uh, wasn't getting updated or really implemented. They weren't even updating the block list as they said they, they were going to. And, um, you know, it's turned into this big thing, right, about how Microsoft's, you know, screwed up and, and whatever. But should admin... Because you need to be admin to be able to install these vulnerable drivers, right? So should admin to kernel, Adam, be a security boundary? What do you think? Tell me. I mean, I would say no. Uh, you know, I feel like if you're in that position, you've all kind of already won. But, but we had that discussion about browsers recently, right? Where did, even yes. if you can get a shell on a system, you can't just grab creds out of a browser anymore, even though by our ancient dinosaur way of thinking, yes, it's game exactly. over. And and that's 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 why I'm confused that, here. Yes, yeah, and, and that's that's certainly where I was about to go, which is whilst it's not a trad security boundary in the computer science sense, it is a practical one because you know so many security tools, EDR, XDR, whatever else, plus all of the you know uh, other operating system controls, do rely on operating in a privileged space to go look down and, and monitor the behavior of users, and maybe you can't you know prevent a user escalating from admin, but you can at least spot it while it's happening. And make it a uh, bit harder. And make it a bit harder and make them get snapped. And I mean, if you know you're going to get watched, then you do have to, you know, think about what you're doing and make the, you know, the, the judgment call as an attacker about whether you're willing to get snapped and whether you think getting snapped is going to be bad for you. Like maybe it's a good thing. Maybe there's other things you can gain from from that process. Um, but it makes you have to make that choice consciously, which slows you down and gives the defenders a, a chance to catch you. So. You know, and then when there's controls that are designed to make that security boundary a thing, so for example, you know, in Linux kernel module signing, right, where you can only load drivers that are signed in Windows, you know, similar sorts of things with code signing, and also this kind of block list where signed drivers that then have had security flaws and the more ways that you can abuse them, you know, where they have functionality that 
you know, like anti-cheat stuff, for example, where legitimately yeah, yeah, it has a whole the, bunch of privilege. The, but yeah, that's the popular stuff at the moment. But like the Shamoon yes. attacks from 2012 used some sort of disk utility driver to do the yeah. wiping, right? So this yeah, is an yeah. old, old trick. It and is. I think I think people have really dressed this up as like Microsoft, we're going to fix this old trick, and they screwed it up, and you know, and that's what I'm like, ah, oh, but admin, admin to admin to kernel, ah, yeah. it's you know, yeah, and I mean, you know, in the end, if Microsoft said that this control existed and worked then it probably should. And yeah. they did say that this existed and worked, but they hadn't updated the block list since, what, like 2019 or something. And, you know, it did not do what it said on the tin. And that's you know, makes people salty. And honestly, any excuse to, to point the finger at Microsoft at the moment, you know, even if we could argue semantics about whether or not it really was meant to be a security boundary, but then we've got Mark of the Web, we've got, you know, all sorts of other, you know, ActiveX controls were once meant to be a security boundary and we soon gave up on that. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, there's been plenty of examples of, you know, let's put a security control in. Oh, it doesn't quite do everything, but it doesn't make it useless, especially if in the real world, if like pragmatically it provides some useful benefit, like it should at least do what it says. It should provide the, you know, implement the control that it says it does correctly. And then Microsoft kind of weaseling about, you know, not getting back to Dan Gooden, for example, about what the state of this control was and fobbing him off, you know, speaks to the, you know, their not so great communication about security issues lately. I think, honestly, they need a comms director who knows what they're doing when it comes to security. Um, kind of, yeah. You know, yeah. like they need to stop doing this stuff. Anyway. That's it, mate, for this week's news. Um, a pleasure to be back in the chair. A pleasure to chat to you and see you again. And, uh, yeah, we're going to do it all again next week. Yeah, thanks so much, Pat. I will see you then. That was Adam Boileau there. Big thanks to him for that. And, yeah, just before we get into the sponsor segment, here is a sample of Claire Aird reading Risky Business News, just so you can hear uh, uh, the new Risky Business News. In today's top story, a mysterious entity has leaked the internal chat logs of the Yan Luang ransomware gang, revealing the group's core members, details about how they build their code and how they deal with victims. The leak reveals that despite their Chinese names and repeated claims that they consist of Chinese nationals, all internal chats are in perfect Russian. That podcast goes out three times a week. If you want to find it, just search for Risky Business News in your podcatcher of choice. Okay, it is time for this week's sponsor interview now with Marco Slaviero, Head of Engineering at Thinkst Canary. And uh, all of you listening, or most of you at least, I'd imagine, know about Thinkst. Uh, they make their little canary honey pots and offer a great console to go with them that integrates things like honey tokens into the same place. And uh, yeah, they're pushing out their latest release, which they have called internally Quokka. Uh, a fine Australian animal, might I add. Uh, as you'll hear, Quokka brings in features like uh, canaries that support mainframe terminal protocols, which is very cool, uh, and more ad advanced like LDAP mimicry and, and whatnot. But uh, yeah, Marco uh, also joined me to talk about the feature requests the company has denied and uh, why they denied them. It is a great chat. So here is Marco Slaviero. So what our upcoming Quokka, uh, which is the internal name uh, release, has in it is a TN3270 service. So, so basically, you can point a TN3270 uh, terminal at uh, at your canary, and you'll get an authentication screen, which, and it'll look just like a Zeros uh, mainframe that you you try to log into. Now, w why that's kind of cool for us is we've had a mainframe profile for a while, and that mainframe profile didn't have 3270 
support. And, and that's kind of indicative for us on how we generally do our engineering around uh, Canary features is like the early versions or the earlier versions will have like an 80% uh, overlap with the thing that we're trying to do because it's we're still trying to get a sense of whether there's interest in it and people are actually using it. Um, and then given sort of the trajectory of things, like we get to spend our time and craft on that stuff. And then, uh, you know, the later releases include more and more uh, parts of those so so yeah tn 3270 is is one of the upcoming ones the so what you uh, just you just set the banner on this thing though so you can make it look like yeah, something yeah. juicy if someone hits it with the right client yeah for sure like like that's sort of almost in our, our world like that's kind of standard stuff like you get to play with those things and and in fact uh one of the ways we get to um i guess noodle on these sorts of things is you know you can include placeholders for inserting current time and you know sort of very very basic templating stuff but but those are the sorts of things that make it look more realistic right because like mainframe uh banners can often include dates and times and that sort of stuff and you don't want that yeah that sort of thing to be static clearly so there's the mainframe service that's coming up in quaka we've also got uh there's a new ldap service and and the ldap service is quite uh flexible because it lets you do things like set up your canary to look like an ldap uh like an open ldap server but you could also use it to make your canary look like an active directory controller for example and and that's one of the ones that um has come out of a customer request for for quite a while and it's not the thing well, that I mean, we... what attacker on the network is going to be able to resist that one right like i'm sort of surprised sure. you haven't had that until now so, so this we we have, but but like it's been that eighty percent implementation, which it doesn't have an LDAP implementation, but it's got other parts of uh, an Active Directory controller, and, and sort of the open ports would match an, an Active Directory controller. And so, given the the sort of popularity of that profile, then we go, cool, this is one of those that needs to have more effort uh, put into it. And so, uh, and so Donald it gets needs to, to look, tackle. It needs to look legitimate for more than thirty seconds, I guess. Is the pretty much the yeah guy. yeah yeah. Pretty much, um, and and so like that that LDAP service will let you again configure it and and you know open LDAP responds differently from uh, Microsoft's Active Directory LDAP service and and you know you'll get both of those uh, behaviors that come out of the one that that we wrote, um, and yeah like in terms of features these are sort of some of the headlines that that are coming in Quaker but we've also got uh, there's an Azure token that's coming up shortly and and the Azure token is not related to canary release but it is a thing that's going to appear on our customer uh consoles and i guess there the, the similarity is the aws api key token you know the idea that you generate a set of fake a, uh, aws uh, api credentials um on your canary console you put those in the network somewhere if that particular location is breached the attacker finds aws keys they're going to try those you get the notification that's been in our commercial and on the free canary tokens.org site for years at this point and it, it's a yeah yeah so why has azure taken so long i was i was wondering about that actually um so azure is uh just a little bit more complex when it comes to the infrastructure around this now now essentially it's the same thing so we can generate a set of azure credentials they don't look like um they don't look ex they're not api keys like it's certificates and uh, and, and subscriptions and, and other uh, bits of information, but but they sort of do sit in standard locations um, on uh, like where you've got the Azure uh, CLI tool installed, and and so this is where we'd recommend people drop these. But at the end of the day, it's, it is just also essentially a text file that you you can put in a location. If someone discovers it, they go, "Hey, Azure creds," and they use them. Um, I think they're possibly slightly less 
common or known than uh, AWS API keys, but but yeah. only slightly. Um, yeah, no, and- no, I, I get it, but I mean, it's just like AWS, just the nature of those creds, I guess, and how easy they are to use would make them the 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 obvious starting point, right? Yeah, and and, and uh, yeah, we've had those ones for a while, and Azure is sort of the next logical extension. And so a little while ago, Jacob from uh, Things Labs, Jacob Torrey, so he took a crack at kind of doing a POC for that. Um, and that's another thing that we've we've merged into the product. Jason from our side, uh, he implemented the Azure tokens, and um, that we expect to go out uh, within the next couple of weeks. So it's uh, basically in, uh, beta. We'd say beta, but uh, I guess other folks might say beta uh, at the moment. Um, and so look out for that one. Nice. What else you got coming? Um, so look, there's a bunch of fixes that are going going to go into it, but I think the other thing that's sort of interesting for uh, really sensitive low traffic networks or networks where the traffic is very predictable, then you can set your canary into the sort of sinkhole or abyss mode where basically it'll accept any traffic that gets centered, any TCP connection that gets centered on whatever port uh, someone tries to connect to. And, and the idea is basically just accept all connections um, and and send an alert when that happens. Um, and so that's, you know, that that's a feature that's pretty specific to Again, very, very sensitive networks. I get exactly why you would have that, right? And that would have been a feature request from a specific customer who had one network where there should not be any like funny packets flying around on that one hitting a box out of turn for any reason, right? So I can absolutely understand why someone would ask for that one. Yes. It, it, it's exactly that one. Now, now like it presents a bunch of uh, interesting technical challenges because you can try and make a service listen on every port, but it's inefficient. And uh, you can also... Uh, try and if you occupy every port, then you can't make outgoing connections. So, so we do it a slightly different way, but but the we kind of get the uh, we get the effect of it, and and basically it gives those, you know, for the customers who need that and want that and know that that's a feature that they'd want, then you know that's now that's not in in uh, the next Quaker release. But I, I think there there's sort of a there's a lesson for us because you know we take. Uh, features from or, or we, we take feature ideas and fr- from a number of locations and some of them are internal so you know the azure token is one that's pretty clear and we've been noodling on it for a bit um, a bunch of them do come from customers and you know thoughts that they have um, so the abyss personality uh, is one of them um, but you know we also look at breach reports we look at uh, attacker blogs to get ideas for how attackers these days are, are moving through networks and and uh, for ways that we can, you know, change Canary to, to catch them. And, and I think actually uh, Harun mentioned this recently in, in his soapbox with uh, the sensitive Windows command token um, that, that came out of that sort of process of looking at uh, a breach and, and seeing what would have caught someone there. Um, but almost, int- I, I guess, or slightly, or, or, or as interesting as where we get feature ideas from is also the thought of, what feature requests do we get that we're just not going to build? Um, and you know, I've, I've previously, I think, here on on this podcast, spoken to you about ways that Canary can't help you, uh, and because you know that's effective marketing. Um, and uh, <laughs> well, I, I think though you're pretty safe doing that with this audience because uh, they know when someone's trying to sell them something that they don't need anyway, right? So um, sure. I, I think you're, I think you're on safe ground there, but yeah, I mean, look, you know, why don't we have that discussion? Which is, what are the features that you're not going to build, and why? Because you've sent me a list here of some of the stuff that 
people have suggested you build. And some of it, like capturing PCAPs, I just sort of wonder why, you know, like this isn't a network-based intrusion detection system. Like why, why are people asking that you would capture PCAPs? So that's one of the things that came out of that and like, for example, exploding malware are the sorts of things that um, old school honeypots would do. Um, And so the idea Mm. of capturing exploits is a thing that that they would uh, promise you. And that's not how we aim Canary, right? So for us, Canary is about breach detection. It's about telling you you've got attackers in your networks. We're not yeah, a research shouldn't honeypot. Fire. It shouldn't fire for no reason. If it fires, it's told you everything you need to know. You don't need a PCAP of someone trying to log into your pretend LDAP server or pretend mainframe, right? Yeah. And, and again, like there's some environments for which those would be useful requirements, but our view and and the way that we pitch Canary and the way that we position it is for our customers, like that's not a thing that's going to help them. Um, And it's not like there's, you know, there's additional risks. So if we say to our customers, look, we're capturing traffic on your network and shipping it off your network or out of your network, like, like that's a risk right there. Like we don't want to be capturing traffic um, and shipping it out of your, your network. And you also say in your list of things you won't do is VLAN support. And I'm guessing that's what? Having a dual-honed box that straddles VLANs? And I can understand immediately why you wouldn't want to do that because then all of a sudden you become a mechanism through which the attacker can actually hop the VLAN and you don't want to be that. I mean, 100%. But it's a super common request is folks saying, hey, well, because like other folks will do VLAN support. Our thing is we don't want to be the bridge between your VLANs. No, so, no, no. I, I saw sorry. that one on the list. And I'm like, well, I know you don't want to do that because you don't want to get someone owned and then get blamed for it, right? Like that seems yeah. pretty uh, uh, pretty reasonable. And, what, what, you know, the last thing on the list that we got to talk about here is uh, what you've called an untethered untethered on-prem console. Uh, what is that? Because I don't even know. <laughs> no, I mean, that's kind of our own term here. But but basically an on-prem console. So, so like a, a sort of a disconnected, completely on-prem console, like in an air gap network, for example. Oh, okay. So uh, you're talking about like an on-prem version of Thinks uh, backend that you know some customer with weird compliance uh, uh, requirements can run on-prem. Yeah. So, so it's it's that thing. Um, and we've had it in the past, and it, and it basically was not um, like we just really disliked it. And so for like you'll see a bunch of arguments about why you shouldn't do on-prem stuff in general. Um, this idea of having a completely disconnected on-prem solution. Uh, we tried it. We came back from that thing and said we're not going to do that. Um, essentially, there's just lack of insight and and like like I see part of this almost as education. Like people are they ask you about VLAN support. You go yes, if we did that, we'd be a bridge. And you sort of see their eyes light up and they go oh actually I hadn't considered that. Yeah, maybe maybe and, that's and, not a good idea. Yeah, and, and now they sort of start to wonder about their other solutions that are sitting across multiple VLANs. Going oh yeah. wait, maybe I should go speak to those uh... vendors and say why. When is Quokka, when is uh, uh, Project Quokka, uh, mm. you know, hitting hitting the virtual store shelves, my friend? <laughs> well, so for like new canaries, that's already the case. And so new canaries will start shipping with that. Um, the updates are for our currently deployed fleet are going to start rolling out in the next couple of weeks. Okay, fantastic. Marco Slaviero, thank you so much for joining me to have that discussion. Always a pleasure to chat to you. Thank you very much, Pat. That was Marco Slaviero from Thinkst Canary there. Big thanks to him for that. And big thanks to Thinkst for being a long-term sponsor and a good friend of the show. And you can find Thinkst Canary at canary.tools. And that is it for this week's show. I do hope you've enjoyed it. I'll be back next week with more security and analysis. But until then, I've been Patrick Gray. Thanks for listening.